The internet has changed. So should the way you bank. PNC Virtual Wallet for Digital Banking. It's time for a change. Now through March 31st, earn up to $300 when you open and use a select new virtual wallet product. Simply establish a qualifying direct deposit. To learn more, visit a branch or pnc.com slash checking offer. PNC Bank. Make today the day. Virtual Wallet is a registered trademark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Uh, today I was delighted to be joined by Matt Ford. Matt Ford is uh, an excellent comedian. Uh, he's also a comedy writer. He's a radio presenter. Um, he hosts a fantastic podcast, well, a couple of podcasts, but the one I listen to uh, is um, the Political Party podcast, where he interviews lots of uh, really interesting guests from UK politics. He's also an excellent impressionist. Um, and uh, he hosts Rock and Roll Football on Absolute Radio, which many of you, I'm sure, will have listened to um, before, maybe in the car on the way to a football match. Um, so I was really delighted to have Matt in. We talked about his love of Nottingham Forest um, and his love of uh, UK politics, uh, or more specifically the Labour Party, um, and how those two things sort of coalesce and combine with each other. Um, we talked a little bit about Qatar towards the end. And um, yeah, it was it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I'm very appreciative to Matt for uh, making time and uh, coming in because at the moment he's very busy. He's on the road with his new show, Brexit Pursued by a Bear, uh, which he describes in uh, greater detail than I, I can uh, later uh, in the show. I'm actually going to see it next week at the South Bank Centre. Um, but for those of you who might be interested to go and watch it, um, he's a very funny guy and he is in Darlington. He's in uh, Hexham, Bedford, London, Maidenhead, Leeds, York, uh, Olnwick. I've never heard of that place. Sorry for anyone from Olnwick. Southend, Cambridge, back to London, London, Brighton, Cardiff, Newcastle, Glasgow, Aberdeen, basically everywhere. I mean, his dates stretch all the way into June. Yeah, I think the show ends in June. Um, but I'm going to go see it next week in, in London at the South Bank Centre. I'm really excited about it. And uh, he describes it as a show which is there for people of all different political persuasions, i.e. he takes the piss out of everyone. So I wouldn't you know, let your political persuasion preclude you from going. Um, so yeah, do visit. And I hope you enjoy today's epi- episode. Thanks again to Matt for coming. Um, before we get started, can I say that this episode is supported by The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. If you visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, you can find that you will get a seven day free trial uh, where you can check it all out, try before you buy. And if you like it, 50% off an annual subscription, which works out to be about £2.50 per day. Um, so please go there. That is theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. And that helps to support our podcast. So we're very appreciative to anyone who would like to try that out. Anyway, uh, no more from me for now. And we will kickstart with uh, Matt Ford. Matt Ford, welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for coming. It's I really appreciate it. How are you doing? Very good. In the middle of a tour at the moment, so uh, you know. Are you are you road a lot? London next week, aren't you? Yes, yes. The South Bank Central on the tenth and twenty seventh of March, and then Darlington, Hexham. Oh God, I always forget where I'm going to be. Brighton, Nottingham, Sheffield, all over the place. All over the place. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm coming to your uh, South Bank Centre show. Oh next great! Week, so yes. I'm oh really, super. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, and I'll see you there. So, can I first ask you, 
you're obviously a big fan. I mean, I know you as a big fan of football and a mm. big fan of, of politics. And I'd love to talk more about the sort of crossover between those two things in the UK a bit later. But first, can I ask you when you first became aware that you were a football fan? I think Italian 90 was the first thing where I really realised I was emotionally invested in it. So I would have been seven that summer. And uh, I'd grown up in Nottingham, obviously around that period, Forest were a big club and we were um, winning trophies at Wembley in 1989 and uh, 1990 won the League Cup, the Littlewoods Cup as it was then. So I was aware that we were kind of a big deal, but I think at that age... Something hadn't grabbed me yet, but I knew I was Forrest and right. I know I really liked Stuart Pearce. Then that tournament just yeah. really, uh, so really, really got a hold of me. I took it, you know, I wept when we lost to uh, West Germany as a seven-year-old kid. <laughs> right, and then yeah. I cried the following summer when we lost to Spurs in the 1991 <laughs> FA Cup final. So I had a really emotional introduction to it all. Yeah. But you just missed out on Brian Clough in the European finals, I guess, then. Yes, yeah, so I was born in 1982. Right. So all the real glory stuff happened before I was born. Just before. Gutted. What a drag. I know. Do you, really, do you have an affinity with Brian Clough, presumably? Hugely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of times. I was a mascot for a Forest game when he was still manager. What was that like? Overwhelming. Right. Firstly, because all the players are naked. Yeah. You're in a dressing room as a nine, ten-year-old boy <laughs> with Roy Keane. <laughs> It's Willie yeah. waggling around. It makes you know. it worse than it's Roy Keane, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and it was, oh God, yeah. And then it was an intimidating place, but Forrest in that season, it was the first season of the Premier League, 1992-1993, were in crisis. Mm. And it was, one of our, it was one of our last home games in the Premier League that season. But an incredible thing to meet Clough as a child. Right, yeah. Huge was it, personality. Was it frightening? Yeah, warm. Yeah. A really specific charisma. Intimidating, right. but friendly with it. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I met him again a few years later. But yeah, that was that was a really special. Even then, even then, not that at the age of nine or ten you realise that you're going to be nostalgic for things like that. Yeah. But you realise you're having a special moment. Right. Yeah. It was like it was like being in a being in a cage with a kind of gorilla. I suppose there's something so I've never met anyone so charismatic, and I've met a lot of charismatic people. I've never met anyone as charismatic as Brian Clough. Right, yeah. And that was true the second time that I met him as well. So when there was a bit of distance, when I was a bit older, in my 20s, I think I met him. Uh, yeah. How I'm do you standing... des describe the charisma? I mean, I, I, I sort of know the feeling of being around someone where you recognise this is an important person. Yeah. But do you? how, how do you describe what that is? How, how are they doing that? Well, that's it. It's not just his... It wasn't just his status as forest manager that was, you know, it wasn't just the office that made him yeah. charismatic. There's something specific about him where, and even at the time he was in a bad way, he still got a wit and a, and a, uh, it was a real mixture of warmth, fast wit and authority right. all in one. <laughs> A really specific and and in the way that and, and in the way that sports people have a specific right. charisma that goes with I suppose an elite level of attainment. Would he have made a good prime minister? Oh, I think he'd be. I think he'd be one of those prime ministers. He'd have to be like a war leader, like Churchill. He'd be very good <laughs> for that particular task. Not in peacetime. <laughs> I fear. Yeah, he might be too belligerent at other yeah. times. I read um, a piece about him recently. I think it was published on the Athletic by Daniel Taylor, and he. I'm not sure if this story was known beforehand or if it just hadn't been explored fully, but Daniel, I think it was Daniel Taylor, apologies if not, but anyway, Daniel Taylor spoke to a man who, when he was younger, 
had essentially been adopted by Brian Clough. Have you heard about this story? No. So I think he was from Sunderland. Right. And he was very young. He would have been seven or eight years old. And uh, he and his brother, I think, they came from a, a quite impoverished background. I'll try and find the story and send Please it to you after. Do, it's yeah. really interesting. Um, and they waited outside um, Sunderland's ground for Brian Clough and Nottingham Forest to arrive. Um, and I think got to say hello and Brian Clough brought them inside the hotel and got the players, every player to sign a poster or something for them. And they did the same thing the following year and Brian Clough remembered them and brought them into the club and let him watch the game with him on the subs bench. Wow. Um, I think there was developed some kind of relationship with the mother, a little bit fractious. And the boys started to spend summers with Brian Clough at his house with his wow wife and his family. Um, and I did, did this sort of on an on-off basis for, for, a, for a number of years. I'd never heard, never heard about it at all. No, I haven't. And it's just one of those stories that, um, I don't know, I mean, yeah, it's, it says, particularly given that this is in a time before, it's, it's not a PR stunt or anything like that. It's just no. something that the man would do. It just uh, adds, like, an incredible gravitas to his, to his character. You know? There's certain people who, um, I suppose it's a bit of a cliche to live life by their own rules, but he is definitely someone who did. Right. And um, that doesn't just mean in terms of being an authoritarian. It also means sort of strange acts of generosity like that, yeah. that are quite eccentric acts yeah. of generosity, I suppose, yeah. for someone of that status. It reminds me of, um, there was a story about Alex Ferguson that came out when he had a brain aneurysm a few years ago. Yeah. Um, I think he, people weren't certain whether he was going to live or not at this point. And a, a local journalist from Leicester uh, tweeted out a, a thread and said, prefaced it by saying, I wasn't going to tell this before because the, the lady involved had asked me not to, but now maybe Alex Ferguson is not going to live. Here's the story. The story was that there was a, a Man United fan, an elderly woman who lived in Leicester, uh, who would write into this sports journalist uh, in Leicester every week to say, why aren't you covering Manchester United? <laughs> and he would reply and say, because this is a Leicester paper. We, we only cover you know local teams here. One day she comes into the office to accost him and uh, ask him to cover Man United more and they get talking. Turns out that she'd, I think her husband had died a few years before and she'd had uh, a stroke, uh, but she'd been a season ticket holder at Old Trafford before that. And Sir Alex Ferguson found out and had sent a car every other weekend to pick her up to bring her to the game and oh pay for her season ticket God. for like five, ten years or something. And this again is like not, not something that was public knowledge beforehand, is not a PR stunt by the club, which you feel like those stories nowadays are only done to, yes. you know, infuse the brand or whatever. But again, that felt like something that, I don't know, only a special person would do and, and never tell anyone about, you know? Sort of thing Liam Gallagher would do. You can sort of imagine <laughs> that there is, you know, there are parallels, I think, with that, with sport, is that, um, mm. I mean, I suppose Ben Foster's kind of like the modern day exponent of that. But you're so, right, it's really, I, I worry that I've become a bit too cynical right. and always think, well, it's a PR son. Oh, Jürgen Klopp's written to a 10-year-old Irish kid yeah. and it's just happened to end up in the papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I suppose if this has always gone on, then... Maybe. maybe maybe we should be a little less cynical about some of the modern acts. Klopp is one of the few I would I would think twice about with that. He feels like a, a genuine person, doesn't he? Yes, and I think Guardiola maybe as well. Yeah. Maybe Mourinho. Maybe, yeah. Okay, so you're seven, you love football. When do you start yeah. to love politics? About the age of nine. Okay, not too long after. No, I remember I remember the ninety two election, so I would have been nine in that summer. How does uh, one love politics at nine years old? I think I remember thinking very early in life, 
The world just seemed very unfair. Now, maybe that's just because, you know, we lived in a, uh, a tough part of Nottingham, uh, in the inner city, in a single family on benefits. So maybe you're sort of more acutely aware that you're... I don't even think you think about it in these terms, but you're sort of aware that... There's an injustice, maybe. Yeah, I've certainly yeah. felt that. Um, and then I remember the day Thatcher left, and my mum was sort of very animated about it. But my mum was a Labour voter, but it wasn't a political house. We didn't have political literature in the house or political books or there weren't political discussions. It wasn't like the Miliband's upbringing or anything like that. It was just, we were normal. My mum was just a normal Labour voter. And then I remember in 1992 when um, the cars would come around with the loud hailers on top and getting Labour stickers and putting them in my window. And then I think the years that followed that... Um, from the age of nine to the age of 14 were five years where Labour goes from this crushing defeat in 1992 to this pinnacle of victory in 1997. Mm. That's a victory like no other, really. And to grow along with that at the time was um, really quite a remarkable uh, thing to watch. Because even at the age of nine, <laughs> people will say, well, maybe Labour will just never win again. Right. I remember those conversations. A bit like now. Well, yes, <laughs> a bit like now, yeah. Um, I think Labour's further away now than it, certainly than it was in 1992, but, um, yeah, that was, I just found that such an addictive period. It strikes me that it sounds quite similar to being a football fan, particularly when you're that age, right? If you, you got the stickers and you put them in your window and you remember the fandom and the cars going past and presumably the community aspect to it as well. At that definitely. age, do you think it's the same sort of thing or the same kind of impulse that's triggered in someone? Oh, definitely. And there's an impulse and there's a, there's a, there's a kind of tribal element to it. Yeah. Where that's your team. Um, so I is, feel that is, less now. Is Tony Blair your Brian Clough? Oh yeah, I think he is. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and similarly, uh, if you want to sort of draw the parallel, I think it would be very odd for Forest fans to start saying, <laughs> "Well, Clough was a sellout." You know, I don't <laughs> think we should listen to Clough. We should listen to Joe Kinnear. Mm. Um, he was really what Forest was all about. What is Clough's equivalent of invading Iraq? Is there one? Maybe relegation in 1993. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But I don't think he thought that was a good idea. That's the difference. No. I don't think Clough would still say, based on the intelligence I had at the time, I think we were right to get relegated. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure the, the parallels always uh, transfer. But, um, yeah, I mean, you, I think one thing that sport teaches you is you listen to winners, and winning is important although actually I think there are weird parallels where I remember so many football fans say I'd rather be in the championship I just cannot the nonsense of that drives me mad in fact I remember a couple of seasons ago when we only stayed in the championship by goal difference mm. when we beat Ipswich on the last game of the season I had friends saying well, I think relegation would do as good to league one and we've yeah. been in league one for three years and it was hell yeah and I think it's one of those things where I think, I don't know whether it's a coping mechanism where people just, the, the, the frustration obviously with Forest is, and partly it is generational. People older than me remember when we were a second division provincial club then. I remember as a top flight club with a big manager with right. England players. Yeah. So this is unusual for me, even though it's been now the majority of my life, right. 21 yeah, years yeah. in the, in no, the that's interesting. out of the Premier League. My perspective is we're a big club and we need to get back to those days. Right. That's tempered by the reality of the history that I know. Um, but a lot of fans are kind of nostalgic for basically shit football. Right, yeah. And I just think that's the, so weird. Is the, I mean, like, my uncle is a Norwich fan. Yeah. And so I guess they're, in recent years, more of a yo-yo club than Forest are. But whenever they do get relegated, as it looks like they might be about to mm. be in the summer, 
I think it probably is a bit of a coping mechanism. He says that. He says, I'd rather be in the championship anyway. But his justification is that the away days are a lot more fun. And this is a man who travels to games almost every weekend as and when he can. Um, So I remember him saying when they were promoted that he was most excited about visiting some different cities for a bit. And after, you know, halfway through the season, I don't know, I think he'd found some of the bigger stadiums and some of the more corporate feel to it a little bit. Maybe, I don't know, disaffecting a little bit boring. And something for him yearns to go to Brentford again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean Brentford Saturday. is one of the best away sure, days. And sure. sadly, that's not going to exist next year. No, right? Um, There's the one with shame. the four pubs, isn't it? Pub on every corner. Yeah. Although I think maybe one or two have closed, but the Griffin's really good. And it's a terraced away end, which right. is just such a novelty. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it is, and it's a very friendly place to go. Um, but I guess if Forest haven't been in the Premier League for how long? 21 years. 21 years. Okay. Well, you're probably desperate for it then, right? Can't wait. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I not looking bad, is it? You're in the playoff positions, right? Yes, we're fourth as, at the time of recording. How are you um, feeling about it? We've got an awful record in the playoffs. We've never, in the four times we've tried to get promoted, we've never got to a playoff final. We've yeah. always just not got past the semis. I think maybe that would be different maybe this season, but... I just I just hate them. I hate the playoffs, I, and I've always I've always been of the view that they're very entertaining for people who aren't involved in them. I think they're yeah. a disgraceful way to decide it. Right. Now, obviously, if we finish fourth, fifth, or sixth, then it gives you the chance to go up. But th- sure. there is a it's always slightly annoyed me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess a, a big part of it is because it's there's a lot of money involved. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's yeah. a big part of everything. So but, you, um, you said before that you don't feel the same kind of. I mean, obviously, you love Forest, but you say you don't don't feel quite the same. How, I don't want to misquote you. What did you say? In that your, your affiliation with it is not quite as... Um, oh, oh, I meant my tribal affiliation with Labour. With Labour, It's not the right. same, yeah. Do you I, feel, I feel the same more... with Forrest as you did? Oh, yes, I'm as, I'm, yeah. as, I'm, as, I'm as obsessed with Forrest. I mean, I, the frustration I do have is just with myself that I can't get to as many games as I used right. to. Yeah, okay. But I need... Forrest not being in the Premier League has kind of... Not affected my personality, but... <laughs> It's, an, it's something that I dwell on so often. Yeah. I just need I just need to get promoted again. It right. would be a big part of making me a happier person. <laughs> so yes, I still feel it as, as much as I ever I did. wonder what a therapist would say about that. I don't know. Uh, is, is it externalising your... Uh... You know, I've thought about this a lot in terms of why I was so drawn to say Brian Clough. Yeah. And my own probably deeply inaccurate crap analysis would be because I was brought up by my mum and grew up with my sister as well that in some way it's a search for a male role model for a father figure whether it's Brian Clough or whoever Stuart Pearce yeah um I don't know whether there's any truth to that, but it sort of sounds like it makes a little bit of sense. It probably is, right? I mean, also, Brian Clough, as you say, is so enigmatic as to fill all vacuums. Presumably, he would have been able to be that for you, as, as I'm sure Ferguson was for Man United fans of that age as well, right? Yeah, and Clough was, <laughs> felt like the leader of Nottingham. Like, he went beyond football. And, and, and obviously, for people of, who remember the, his, the period slightly before, really, I was around is he transcended football he was a, he was a chat show star he was everywhere he was he was a celebrity um as as much as he was a football manager so and that applied in Nottingham as well he wasn't just seen as the manager of the football team really he was seen as the leader of the city mm. and Nottingham was a relatively small place really compared to places like Manchester or, or, or obviously London so he really filled that stage. Yeah. I remember when he got Freeman of the City in 1993 when it was all starting to fall to pieces thousands of people in the market square just to see him get his Effectively, the, the, a local OBE, I guess, and yeah. he got an OBE as well. But um, 
just an adoration for him as an individual, not yeah. just for his achievements. And he was famously left-wing in his politics as well, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. I think the Labour Party had tried to get him to stand numerous times. Right. Did that influence you at all? I think I was too young to kind of really fully appreciate that. But obviously, when you're growing up and you realise he's Labour as well, that's kind of like a cool thing, but mm. um, it's probably way to the left of me. Right, yeah. This is a time as well, I think. I, I don't know what you think about this or if this is... If this is inaccurate or not but I feel like particularly in the 90s and maybe this was just a new Labour thing there seemed to be a more close alignment between politics or frontline politics and uh, popular culture including football and I remember I mean I was very young at the time but I remember Tony Blair's attempts to kind of engage with a football crowd and the whole um, uh, Oasis thing you know and I feel like Culture and politics have sort of shifted apart a little bit more now. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I know that you have David Cameron getting his club wrong. I mean, I don't know if <laughs> Boris Johnson has, has ever mentioned a football team. Uh, I feel like politics and football are f- further away than they were. Do you think that's? Yeah, and I think that's. True? I think that's probably a, a signal that that mainstream politics is kind of away from mainstream people. You don't think football's drifted? I don't, well, I mean, football has definitely changed in terms of what it, as a product in a way. Is it harder for politicians to get behind Man City, for example, than it would have been 20 years ago? I mean, I don't think it should be. I don't, I don't, if you're a Man City fan as a politician, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't still, I mean, they've had the most amazing period. Right, yeah. I think maybe more, I think football's gone in a way where so much of society has where when I was growing up and I still believe this a football fan is someone who goes to games whereas we've lived in a period in the Premier League era where increasingly being a football fan is about watching it at home on a big telly yeah and that's great and you can watch you know the Premier League is phenomenal to watch and I love watching it but going to games football culture has changed I think for better and for worse um, the stadiums are safer there's less hooliganism certainly than when I first started going um, and it's less prejudiced and all the rest of it there's still big problems but it's nowhere near as widespread yeah. as it was um, it's been a bit gentrified really it has for better and for worse yeah. um, and the behaviour's improved that's not I mean the danger I think with that is the assumption that regressive social values in football stadiums were because there were more working class people there than there are now. Plenty of working class people were horrified by racism and homophobia and hooliganism and misogyny. So it's not just about that, but um, I think football, as with so many other things, music has changed in that period as well. And if you think about Cool Britannia, one of the things that Noel Gallagher always says about Nebworth and that period is Oasis really were the last big band before the internet. Right when people still had to queue up and buy CDs. Mm. And that, you've lost that tangible yeah. I relationship guess, with music. I guess you see it a little bit, you saw it a little bit with, with Corbyn uh, in the lead up to, actually it was more in the lead up to the 2017 uh, election, I feel like, than the 2019 election. But him uh, meeting and interviewing with Stormzy and attending, uh, he was at Glastonbury, wasn't he? Yes. And he was interviewed in the NME and stuff. I guess there's maybe some crossover between popular culture and, and politics there. But... Um, did it never happen with the Tories? I mean, I don't remember really, but maybe, maybe it is in my memory is just a new Labour thing rather than a sort of political thing. They had obviously they had like it it depends on your view of whether these people are cool or not. But the Tories had like (laughs) Phil Collins and people like that. (laughs) I think whenever you get a kind of thing like Britpop, 
where yeah. it's predominantly working class lads, you know, like Oasis and the Verve and whatever. At that time, they were just more likely to be Labour. Um, I'm not sure the same would necessarily be true now. I'm not sure Stormzy would be as vocal in his support for Corbyn. Right. I think the shine sort of came off Corbyn in many ways. Glastonbury, of course, was Corbyn's kind of core constituency, really. And I thought yeah. it was really telling. I was at both of them. I thought it was amazing that he didn't go to the last one. I thought that was a real right. sign that he'd kind of realised that perhaps Maybe he wouldn't the get the reception that he got. I mean, I just think those things are always, no matter how popular the politician, I would always advise a politician not to walk out on the pitch at a football stadium. Right, yeah. Because... Someone's the risk. <laughs> yeah. The ri- I mean, because even even if they like you, people will might not necessarily want to be that vocal in a football stadium about liking mm-hmm. whoever. Yeah. And I also think be a football fan, fine. Go and watch it. Don't try and use it. If you try and wrap yourself in it, I think it looks too cynical. This is going to be one of my questions because I feel like you see a lot of um, obviously in the lead up to to general elections, politicians and political parties try to use whatever cultural group that they can to uh, levy results, right? Of course. Um, And I feel like uh, maybe this is just retrospective. uh, As I said, I was quite young, but I feel like Tony Blair did that quite well with football or football culture uh, in the 90s um, and that no one really tried to do that in the last uh, 10 years. I can't remember that happening or being uh, being a feature of any uh, political campaign and I just wondered why do you think it is because it's too much of a risk or it seemed to be too cynical a thing to do maybe I mean I, I don't think politicians are ever beyond doing the cynical thing regardless of whether they're yeah. left wing or right wing I, I would have thought football's a huge group of people like of why wouldn't you why wouldn't you try to get football fans on your side I mean I think it probably happens more at a local level um, right. I was I'm always deeply cynical of and I shouldn't be and I thought about this on the way here so I thought we might talk about it MPs who aren't from the area who become the MP for say uh, Leeds right yeah. and then they're from say Nottingham and they grew up a Forest fan and then all of a sudden they're putting a Leeds scarf over sure. their jacket shoulders now of course it's insane to not get behind the local thing right? whether it's the local brewery or the local library football team so it goes with that so I don't blame yeah. people for doing that but I'm always just a bit like, oh, you've just moved to the area to be the MP and all of a sudden you're this super fan. What would you do in that scenario if you were the new MP for Leeds? Would you, oh, not, would you not put a Leeds scarf on and no, say, hey, I'm not. a Forest fan, but I'm here for you guys? Oh, no, no, no. No? no I wouldn't put a Leeds... I wouldn't ever... No, I wouldn't wear the scarf of another... Unless you were there at like some charity do or whatever. I think that's different. Right. Okay. Really, but I wouldn't go and pretend to be a Leeds fan. I would... If you're the local MP, of course you would wish some success for the local people whoever they are but yeah. I think pretending to support a football club <laughs> when you already support one I think is peculiar and the giveaway is always still wearing a jacket but with a pristine scarf yeah. over the over the back almost like a vicar wears those things <laughs> I mean obviously you can't have Corbyn going to Arsenal games in a Stone Island top so yeah. like fair enough but and Corbyn is an Arsenal fan right as is John McDonnell is that what, what's your take on that because it seemed fairly genuine to me, but I don't I know. I don't know. I don't know, to be honest. I mean, he's he's been MP for Islington. Yeah, South I mean, he's from Shrewsbury, so... Right. Technically. Why is he sporting Arsenal? How, how dare he? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, they're big clubs, whatever, <laughs> fine. Maybe he only sure. got to... You know, uh, as well, and I think this is a personality failing of my own, I recognise, is people get into football too late, I just think, well, then you are just using it, because right. why wouldn't you have supported... 
Your local team. I've got a real thing about local teams. It's a like tough that. one, though, isn't it? I don't, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah. I don't wish to defend. I'm, too, I'm a cynical yeah, I think that's what it is. But I wonder if, even if you aren't really a football fan, and I think probably from the fans' assumption is that most politicians, as a result of being a politician and the life choices that they will, they will have made, are not football fans, right? And maybe the yeah. odd one out actually is. But let's say you are, you know, 37 years old, you become the MP for Leeds, you haven't <laughs> been a, a football fan before now. Forget yeah. about Clough, forget about Forrest. Yeah. Uh, but you find yourself engrossed in a uh, in a community which is broadly supportive of you and has just voted yeah. you in and you're visiting all the local bakeries and you're going to the village fete and you're invited to the football club yeah. and you put the scarf on and you think oh maybe I'll give yeah. it a try now maybe these people are nice and uh, I'm going to see see what football's about is it possible? Maybe. I think it is yeah but, I, I, but just nah, as a football nah. fan I'd still be like mm. Mm. who are but, the football fans then? Who are the real fo- I mean, you've met a lot of politicians. Who are the real football oh, fans? Oh, Alistair Campbell is a genuine yeah. obsessive. Sure. Full-on obsessive. Mm. Uh, and Gordon Brown, apparently, he said Gordon Brown, well. yeah. Gordon Brown's genuinely into it. He's a I Man mean, United fan. I right? always got the impression from talking to Tony Blair, he was genuinely into it. I always um, felt like Tony Blair was just pretending a little bit, but was bolstered by the fact that, you know, Brown and, uh, and Campbell were. Yeah. Who else is there that's really... Oh, Toby Perkins, the MP for Chesterfield's big football fan. Right. Uh, who else are the ones that I know... Oh, God. Um, what about Dominic Cummings? He's done something... He said something about football recently. I meant to read this before you arrived. But oh, man, I should have read it. He said something... Um, maybe we should look this up quickly. Uh, i tell you what, give me two seconds, because it was interesting. I re- briefly read about it the other day. Um... Oh, I can't. It's not coming up immediately. Never mind. Anyway, he said something about football, but you don't know if he's a football fan or not. I've got no idea. Do we know uh, what, was it positive him? or negative? Or was he it trying was, to it was an intention to, to do something. I don't know if it was a policy uh, pledge like or Fans on was, boards or safe standing or something. It wasn't that. It was, uh, it was football would view it as negative and fans would maybe view it as positive, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, God. Should have looked it up before yeah. you arrived. <laughs> I should have known what it is. I can't believe this has passed me by. It was a small little thing. I think I saw it in The Guardian, but um, okay. we'll, we'll look it up after we'll look it anyway. Up, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, we don't know much about him in that regard, maybe. You would assume not, right? He doesn't fit. I mean, just based on the way he dresses. Although yeah. I say that, this is part of the problem with non-football people's view of football sometimes is... <laughs> I have to explain this to people. Most football fans are not trying to be in the football factory and are not geezers or hooligans. Like, it attracts, on the most part, normal people. And in a large part, a kind of nerdy kleptomania uh, retention of stats. Now, it's not that you sit at home, although I'm sure some people do, and read all the old Division I titles and all the rest of it. It's just that this thing is so big in your life. Mm. There's such vivid memories. You remember the scorelines. You remember the players. And I think that then encourages something in. I mean, uh, my mum's always on at me that I've basically left all my programmes at her house. I've got hundreds of forest You've got a lot of memorabilia. Loads, yeah. And I'm obsessed with it. And I do a forest podcast with Paul McGregor, who played for Forest in, in the 90s. And he's just baffled as to why I'm always asking people, have they kept their shirts, <laughs> their medals? Uh, and they they seem to view that, certainly yeah. footballers prior to this generation, as quite an odd question. Right. It's a bit nerdy, isn't it, I suppose? It's, it's I a funny so, yeah. that that's a kind of nerd trend within football fandom. Again, it's the sort of thing you would 
expect wouldn't exist based on the stereotypes, but um, definitely does, right? Yeah, I mean, they badges, still sell programs. Badges, badges scarves, right. programs, autographs. How many autographs do you have? Oh, hundreds. Really? I've got, I've got a, a phenomenal collection of not just Nottingham Forest autographs, but in the Premier League years, I had a season to get the main stand, which is what has the players' car park in it, including the visiting team. So I'd get to kick off three hours before, I'd get to the stadium three hours before kickoff. Wow. John Barnes, Ian Rush, Jamie Redknapp, Viali, Di Matteo, <laughs> Alex Ferguson, Keegan, Ginola, Aspria. Yeah. Just reams of these. <laughs> Liverpool, Arsenal, Man United, Newcastle, you know, those big teams, Chelsea. Mm. So many of those. Wow. Yeah, just reams and reams of autographs in little books and things. Does it have sentimental value to you still? Massive. Right. Massive. Will and you I keep would, it forever? Yes, I would never part with any of that stuff. Right. Uh, it's a real burden for your children. It is, yeah. I mean, I, I um, <laughs> if I ever have them, I. Uh, but what a great thing to pass on! I think I've sure. got a, I've got a shirt that I get signed by every guest of this Forest podcast. So I've got this replica nineteen seventy nine European mm. Cup final shirt signed by John Robertson, Frank Clark, John McGovern, and then yeah. Andy Reid. Like all these different generations of Forest players, yeah, Steve Chettle. Yeah. We had Shane Meadows on, even as an Ox County fan, so he signed right. it. So it's got like this r- weird <laughs> mix of broadly forest autographs on it. Look, oh, that sounds cool. I'll get that frame one day. Right, you, maybe you could be buried in it. That is a great... Oh, man, buried in a full kit. Why not? If they're still burying by then. Would oh, you, yeah. Maybe you'd have to burn it along with your body, I don't know. <laughs> if I could be burned in a forest yeah, kit. Yeah. Your ashes oh, I wonder mixed what forever. kit I'd be burned in. I, I think... <laughs> The 1991 FA Cup final kit is still my favourite. <laughs> right, sure, okay. We'll add that to the list yeah, <laughs> when, when we burn the body. Um, so you're also a fantastic comedian. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say. You're welcome. Football, comedy, where's the crossover there? Apart from you and Ellis James. Not necessarily in people, but like, do you, do you, have you got football jokes that you can get in? Oh, that is a really good point. Because it I, feels like not that... I don't know if it's just the comedy that I see, but I don't see the crossover that much. No, not many people do football comedy. That's a very good point. I mean, my first Edinburgh show, I had a few kind of stories in there that were football related. I mean, occasionally, because I'll do like the odd impression, I'll try and crowbar in. I'll use like a football thing as maybe a device. So I had an old routine about... Oh, what was it now? Basically, if transfer deadline... Basically, I can't remember what the thing was. But if it was done on like transfer deadline day, so right. Jim White basically <clears throat> yeah. talking about politics. So right. there was a way really to get an impression in. But then yeah, you're yeah. kind of doing observational stuff about Soccer Saturday or right. Stelling yeah. without going... Oh, so I was kind of using it as a way to do political material, but really it was an observation about... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can do it with stuff like that. And occasionally, I think... Uh, I'll maybe get in like a football analogy or something. I think yeah. in the end, you end up, your, your references are all the things you're watching and consuming, aren't they? So I will often use football as an analogy right. without doing material that is exclusively about football. Mm. And as a result of being a comedian, you are presumably on the road often. Yeah. Uh, so that impacts your ability to go to Forest Games, right? It has had an awful effect. Right. And particularly, I do a radio show on Saturdays, Rock and Roll Football on Absolute, between Which two and five. Great, that's by completely, the way. Oh, well, that's very kind. But it has completely taken me out of the game. Right, yeah. So it's, it's been really... <laughs> Good and bad, I suppose. Yeah, I, feel, I mean, I feel, I do feel quite emotional about it. Mm. And I, I wonder, I've thought of this about myself, and I suppose there's a wider political point here about identity and whether I feel it more keenly because I've moved away from Nottingham. Yeah. And whether... 
I mean, I was fanatical as a kid, so it's not as if I would never went. You know, I had a season ticket every year that I was there. But since I've moved away, I think I'm more likely to buy, say, a kit and a shirt because right. I'm not there anymore yeah. or I'm not there as much. So it means I kind of want to sort of hold on to that as well as, I don't know, I'm not expressing this very well, but I wonder no, I if that's mean, about yeah. whether there are there are sort of political <laughs> um, implications to that. Right, about yeah. With Brexit and things, you know, people sort of, or maybe expats is kind of, I'm basically like a Nottingham expat <laughs> in London expert, where yeah. I've become more Nottingham since I moved yeah. away. There'll be a, a Nottingham uh, club down here. So, uh, what do you there is, yeah, the London about? Trickies. London uh, Trickies. They meet at the, I think we, they watch the games at the Comedy Pub now. Uh, right. Oh, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's the Bar and Grill, I think. At, um, the Sports Bar and Grill, I think, at Marleybone Station. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, Which is uh, nice, your little expat community. Yes, it yeah. is, yeah, yeah. And I think then you kind of are more likely to wear forest stuff now than yeah, I probably would have been. Right. You're but, probably pretty safe wearing, I mean, you're safe wearing forest stuff everywhere nowadays, but you're, you're probably pretty safe wearing a. Do you wear forest stuff to away got, days? No, no, no. I think you have to be careful just in case right. you get on a train or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I would never wear anything branded. Um, I've got two forest jackets. One's like a kind of little waterproof. It's not really that waterproof, but another one's like a basically a padded Adi, uh, Adidas like manager's coat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which is yeah. the warmest coat I've got, and I wear it around. And occasionally, like my girlfriend or a dad will go, "Are you sure you want to wear that <laughs> around?" But I'm like, no one's going to give me grief for wearing foreign. No. I, mean, I wouldn't wear it in Derby or Leicester. I'm not an sure, idiot. Sure, or uh, maybe not in Leeds or Man. But you just like in London. Yeah. it's an international city anyway isn't it sure. and occasionally you wear it and people go you rich on the other side of the streets nice. and you think one of I me kind of, yeah exactly yeah. it's a way to find other forest fans yeah. I kind of forgot that it's got the crest on it now it's just a coat but mm. do you have uh, shorts and socks I've got shorts do you ever do the full kit thing uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> although I do like use kits as um, pajamas, really. So sometimes I'm in bed in pretty much a full kit. In a very vulnerable state. Apart, so. from, the, apart from the socks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think the last time I actually possessed a full kit was probably in the 90s. Right, yeah. And do you play football? So there's comedians football every Tuesday, but I haven't right. played for ages. I'm very susceptible to injury. Right. And without going into too much detail, I've basically had a, an awful time with I'm asthmatic and I've just had a, the last few years I've had a recurring <laughs> chest complaint right so I've been able to play which has been a real shame because it, yeah. it was just socially it was great fun hey coronavirus is no good for, for you huh no oh well I'm really worried about well not I'm you trying too. to like not, I'm not hysterical about it but I am slightly like I've got I'm a lung thing as well and uh, my girlfriend thinks I'm insane but uh, I'm washing my hands all the time yes yeah. you just have to be careful I think especially in London where there's just so many people yeah you are more kind of vulnerable in a yeah. way. So I, I, I am taking precautions, but I haven't played football for ages. No. But I play football in the way that I think Stuart Pearce plays football. Um, quite physical. Right. And emotional. <laughs> <laughs> How it should be played, yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Who's good? When you go to a comedian's football, who, who's good? Russell Howard is very good. Is he? Yeah, there was a guy, looks quite athletic. He's he? really good. Yeah, low centre of gravity. Right, uh, 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 gravity. <laughs> low centre of gravity and can turn well, and he's technically gifted. Right. Milton Jones is good. Tim Vine's good. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Kitson's good. Daniel Kitson's good. Yeah, that surprises uh, me. Ha Daniel Kitson strikes me as someone who would hate football. He loves it. He's really wow. good at it. He really basically runs it. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, I don't know who supports, but he's, he's right. good at playing it. Um, Tom Parry from Pappies is very good okay, at playing. Yeah. Um, uh, who else? So I haven't been for a while. Um, 
Yeah, so it's a sort of mixture of aptitudes, so it yeah. kind of levels it out. Oh, nice. That sounds fun. I've heard about this. Is there is there a politics football game going on somewhere? Or <laughs> I know I know there's like a football journalists game that goes on. I assume there's one for every sort of uh, little subgroup. Oh, I'm not sure there are enough political comedians to kind of. Oh no, just politicians. I mean. Oh, well, Keir Starmer plays five-a-side, doesn't he? I tried to get Keir Starmer on the podcast, but uh, he never replied to my email. You might have so. to wait until the contest is over. This was like a year ago. Oh, really? Yeah. I would have thought it would have been, you know, maybe not. I think it'd be on his street. Mm. Oh, we should have thought of him earlier in terms of... I think he's a genuine football fan. Yes, he does. He plays a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. And apparently he's quite good. Yeah. In fact, I think I heard that on your podcast. Oh, maybe you yeah, did. I'm yeah. pretty sure I did. I think, well, how do I know that? Yeah. It's because of you. Yeah. yeah. You've interviewed all of the uh, candidates for the... I have, yeah, Labour, for the Labour leadership, yeah. That's that's really cool, isn't it? I think so. Someone is, uh, And I have almost that kind of approach um, that from the, from a football fans thing of almost you want to kind of complete the set. Right, yeah. And uh, it's cool to talk to people who are yeah. doing it. And there's a magic about that, whether I agree with them or not, whether I would ever vote for them or not. Sure. I think there is something about politics that sets it apart and I'm interested into why people go in why they make the decisions they make. And with all the people, I think you get a sense of, are these people open-minded and are they open to kind of mm. self-analysis? Right. And I just think that's so fascinating in that world. Do you think Keir Starmer's going to win? At the moment, it looks like he is, yeah. I mean, yeah. predicting politics is so <laughs> hard now. All sure. the rules feel like they've been torn up, but yeah. if the sort of polling we're seeing is correct, then, then yeah. I think he's... That is one, yeah. Uh, just a quick interlude in today's episode for me to remind you that this episode is supported by The Athletic. Now, you may remember from a few minutes ago, um, I was telling Matt about um, the story of uh, Brian Clough written by Daniel Taylor. It was Daniel Taylor and it is in The Athletic and it is genuinely one of the most interesting and heartwarming um, pieces of football writing I think I've ever read. Um, and I mean that genuinely, it made me cry when I read it. It was, it's a really beautiful story. Um, and it's called The Remarkable Tale of Two Boys Who Went Begging for Pennies and Ended Up Living with Brian Clough. Um, it's really, really worth reading. I obviously described it a little bit in, uh, in the podcast itself. But yeah, as I said, it, it moved me greatly. Um, and it's, it's super worth having a look at. So I'm going to put the link to it in the description to today's podcast and you can get a seven-day free trial by using our uh, sign-up link. So if you want to go and read that piece, um, I would highly encourage you to do so. It's not just for, for Forest fans. Like it's honestly, it's, it's as I said, it's, it's really, really moving. Um, and it's an excellent piece written by Daniel Taylor, who, of course, everything the man writes is incredible. I'm hoping we can get him on the podcast at some point soon. That would be cool, huh? Um, but anyway, if you go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, you can get a seven-day free trial there. Um, go and read this, and I'm confident that if you do, uh, you will feel good about taking up the 50% off offer, which means it's about £2.50 uh, a month, which is great because it's super affordable, it's ad-free, and uh, it has all of the best writing, um, not just about your club, but also about football that's happening around the world. Um, so yeah, that's the athletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. Uh, thank you for listening, and back to the episode. Okay, can we take a little swerve here and talk sure. about uh, Qatar? <coughs> yeah. Because, uh, yeah, the Qatar World Cup, I mean, it's being held in the winter 2022, so we're still nearly three years away from it at this yeah. point. Um, but it seems to me to be a pretty significant moment in the history of football 
and uh, I don't think people are really talking about it very much. So we try to talk about it here all the time. I think it's one of the most depressing decisions. Yeah. I think it's awful. I mean, for so long, as a football fan, you've basically had to suffer immorality and amorality, where, and that was about whether that's footballers' private lives or whatever. Football has not done itself a great service a lot mm. of the time. Still does a lot of good, and I think things have improved. But the people who are in charge of football, specifically FIFA, I think have just been disgraceful. And it what well, there's just so many things wrong with it. Right. There's so that everything is wrong with Qatar. Absolutely everything is wrong with it. It can't host a summer World Cup, so everyone's seasons now are ruined by that thing. The treatment of the workers mm. is a disgrace. Yeah. And that, how can you allow it to happen? It's wasteful. The the way in which the bid was handled, these, the, why do you have to announce 2018 and 2022 together? That only encourages corruption. Mm -hmm. And obviously from an England point of view, I always try and check myself when it comes to England and Britain in terms of, I would never want to think that we overlook our own shortcomings or that we're not realistic about um, our role in things. But we could host the World Cup tomorrow and it's a disgrace that we didn't get that. The 2018 one still winds me up as much as 2022. Really. Yeah. I just think the whole thing stank. Yeah. I feel really... I, I, I feel cheated and I just think whatever our shortcomings as a nation when it comes to football there are many. Mm. It's the home of association football. We have the stadiums, we have the infrastructure to be able to host it. You could probably host a World Cup in London. Right. We definitely could. We've yeah. been cheated out of it. That is an injustice, and it really is. And uh, I, I'm still there's certain elements of sour grapes about it. It really annoys me that we've, we've been done out of that. Yeah. And I think partly the Euro 2020 thing of hosting it across the continent, which I also think is an awful idea. Why do you, why do you think that's a bad idea? Because one of the great benefits of like major <laughs> tournaments is, and it's one of the great powerful things about football is its ability, almost just through association to culturally educate people about different parts of the world and you get to know the geography of these countries and phrases mm. and foods and all that and football's been a great driver of educating people around the world about different parts of the world and um, obviously it's done a lot of social good as, as much as the problems that do come with it so then what's the point in having it all across Europe and for fans I'm always so cynical about this stuff I'm like, they just want to make money on flights and hotels and all that. I, uh, maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I just think they think we'll make shitloads of money out of this. And what <laughs> we'll do, we'll give we'll give Wembley the final yeah. and that shuts the English up for a bit. <laughs> and the semi-final. Yeah, yeah, I think they'll right. go, well, you basically hosted that, so right, that's yeah. you done for 30 so years or whatever. Off, yeah. Okay, so to take the counter-argument with some of the elements of your argument there to the World Cup, is there a case to say... Yes, obviously, the first thing on the list is the treatment of migrant workers and the kafala system employed in the Gulf states and that it's fucking dreadful. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many infringements on, on human rights. It's hard yes. to count on one hand, right? Yeah. Is there an argument to say that most people didn't know what or where Qatar was beforehand? The, as you say about the benefits of hosting a tournament in one place, you learn the geography of the area, you learn the culture of the area, and the... However microscopic it might appear to have, have been the shifts in domestic policy in Qatar since, as a result of the international community um, having two eyes on Qatar because of the World Cup, is, is there an argument to say that after 2022, 
the the situation for workers in Qatar will be improved ever so slightly as a result of the World Cup in a way that it wouldn't have been otherwise and that to engage rather than to back away from is the right attitude. I mean, there's it's a, there's a parallels with politics here and that's yes. why it's an interesting question to talk to you about because if you're a politician, how do you approach a, a situation like that? I think there's so many different strands. So firstly, I don't think you should ever punish the people of a country because of the regime running it. Sure. That said, I think, well, let's see what happens, right? But let's say Qatar uh, becomes a bit more liberal during the tournament. Mm. I have no faith at all that once that tournament is over, things then don't go back to the way they are. Sure. I severely doubt whether conditions would stay improved if they improve at all during that period. Mm-hmm. Or attitudes of the regime towards gay people would change as sure. a result of that tournament. They might put on a bit of a show. Um, I think the danger is you legitimise these people, you give them... Right. You saw it in Russia in 2018, and I never forget, I can't remember who it was, but it was, a, it was a pundit on a major broadcaster when it was raised about Russia. And they said, well, I've got to say, we've been very well treated. <laughs> like, you're missing the point. And that, it, it just proves that... Shipping people out there, putting them in nice yeah. hotels and giving them a nice breakfast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Creates an impression where pundits can say, well, you know what, it was, that sure. was not the point. The point wasn't you couldn't get a nice hotel room or that you couldn't watch football over right. there. It was that you give legitimacy. And Russia yeah. deliberately, at the Sochi Olympics, it had uh, the Winter Olympics and, and, and obviously the major tournament, uh, the World Cup. Which was an amazing World Cup. Not in terms oh, of the hosting, of but like the, the football was incredible. And that creates an impression where you go, yeah. oh, Russia was great. You know, right. now, fair enough. Russia as a country, obviously, sure. has a lot to offer the world. Yeah. Um, apart from its regime. Um, mm. I just worry, I think. And part of the problem is, it's been the accumulation of Russia and Qatar. You go, oh, Matt, can you not give it? If you're going to give it to Russia, don't give it to Qatar as well. Give it to right. Russia and then give it, you know, right. somewhere that isn't having these issues. Or actually say, if you want to host these tournaments, you have to meet a threshold first. Right. Which I think is part of the rules. But Apparently the threshold is. was... Uh, these rules obviously aren't. A little flexible, yeah. I remember my favourite story about the, the bidding process or the, the announcement was, um, was an interview done by a journalist called James Montague, who, if you haven't heard of him, read some of his books. He's incredible. Um, but he interviewed an ex MI6 agent who was working uh, on the the World Cup bid in it was in Switzerland. I can't remember where it was. I think it might have been in Switzerland. Anyway, he describes the moment that the Russians arrived, that the the the, the, the camp arrived, um, uh, and they knew that they'd arrived because suddenly all of the communications for the other countries were jammed <laughs> for the for the duration of the, of the bidding process. Wow. And that was the kind of signal that the Russians were there. It's like, right, you, you know, there's no, no more communications for you guys. My word. Uh, I was just thinking that was so, uh, seemed like such an old school thing to do. So you know. brazen as well. It, well, that's Putin though, isn't it? I mean, I feel like whenever I see Putin at a global conference or interviewed in front of an audience, he's asked a question about some controversy and he'll look down the camera and basically say, like, what the fuck are you going to do about it? Yeah. Which I find funny as well as finding terrifying. You know? Yes, it would just be nice if, to bring it back to football, the people who ran football were more mindful of stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Which appears not to be the case at all. I think things are changing. I think certainly, and again, not to overlook the problems we have at home, I think Gareth Southgate has been a positive influence on English football way more than just on the pitch and has shown people what 
a kind of modern England can look like in so many ways. And I think that's one small grain of hope mm. I take from this period. So how do you deal with Qatar then, as a fan? I don't think I'll go. No. Although I don't know, I mean, I say that. <laughs> what am I saying that for? I feel similarly because I, I anticipate that for my job, I am going to cover it. Yeah. So I, but I feel a conflict there. And I suppose then, yeah, covering it in the in the best way we can is important. But just as a, as a supporter, I know of people who say they're not going to watch. How can you not watch it? That's the problem. I mean, literally how it's on everywhere, but... And also, I just, I love England so much. I just can't not watch it. Does that make you a hypocrite? Yeah, on some level, yeah. Yeah, but you know, that's, that's the part of the, right. the, the thrill of the human experience is uh, <laughs> being a contradictory uh, two-faced bastard. That's yeah, the yeah. best comeback to that. I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's quite a bit of a sour note to end on, isn't it? So instead, can I ask yes. you now, so we're going to pivot from Qatar to uh, Brexit Pursued by a Bear, which oh, is your that's very kind of you. As I say, I'm going to see it next week, so I haven't seen it yet, but... Um, I'm very excited, and uh, it's on in London next week, and you're in uh, all of these other cities. Oh, so People can places. go to your website, presumably, to find... Yes, mattford.com slash live. I'm doing right. uh, the South Bank Centre on the 10th and 27th of March, and a date in May as well. But uh, Darlington, Hexham, Bedford, <laughs> Glasgow, Edinburgh, Sheffield, Nottingham, all, all, all over the place. I'll lose track of them all. I've never interviewed a comedian before, so I don't know the etiquette. Is it okay to ask you to sort of say what it, the show is about? Or Oh, that's, yeah, that's a very polite way of asking. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, a bang-up-to-date, satirical show, taking the piss out of all of them. Right. So whether you're Leave or Remain, Labour or Tory, everyone gets it. Right. So I take the piss out of Boris, Corbyn, the SNP, Farage... Leavers, Remainers and Trump. And okay. as, uh, I try and make it as ludicrous and as uh, fun as possible. So it's not a heavy night out. It's, uh, Do you have to keep rewriting? I mean, presumably less so now, but if you had to keep re rewriting it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is always. that good or bad? It's a fucking nightmare. Right. <laughs> you know, I love to... Sometimes I think, well, this is a great creative challenge and what a thrill to have a job where you're writing jokes about what's happening. You can go out on stage that night. Another part of me thinks, oh, man. Yeah, right. Never get a moment's peace. <laughs> but, it's, yeah, it's a, uh, I think it's a treat overall. But, yes, it's a nightmare to have to keep rewriting it. But yeah, then right. if I'm someone who's saying to people, political comedy is something you should come and see, then I suppose that's part of the part of the territory. Sure, yeah. Well, listen, Matt Ford, thanks so much for Thank you. Coming. It's been a real pleasure. Really appreciate it. And best of luck for your show and for Forrest, of course, for the rest Thank of the oh, season. Oh, man. It's going to be good, maybe. Fingers crossed. <laughs> All right, we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. 